If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 27. We're continuing on in our series in the book of Acts. We are witnesses, we are multiplied, we are sent. This is Paul's journey to Rome. He is going there to be a witness for God at the heart of the empire. But along the way, there would be many storms and trials. God is working in all of them. And as we're going to see, Paul is faithful in every situation. The very same thing God has asked of you and me. That no matter what we face, no matter what storms that come or trials that come our way, God is asking us to be faithful to him in every situation, to the mission that he's given us. Paul made a difference in his world and we can in ours. Luke was an eyewitness. He was on board the ship with Paul as he traveled to Rome. He writes it from an eyewitness perspective. And this is the way he records it in Acts 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, there we landed at Myra in Lycia. And there, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, 
Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice to, and not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he had said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the mainsail, or the foresail, to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow, the bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered them who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. And this way, everyone reached land safely. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice had not, has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, 
the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Wow. Let's pray together. Father Paul was a faithful man. And no matter what he faced, he remained faithful in every situation. He was sent with a message, and he was going to be true to that message. He was given a mission, and he was going to be faithful to that mission. Lord, we today have been handed that baton. We have the same message, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have the same mission, to share that good news with all people that we meet until all nations believe. There will be storms in our life as well along the way. But with your help, we can remain faithful in every situation. Would you help us today, God, to learn this vital lesson, the lessons that propelled Paul to be faithful in Rome and to the very end. And we'll thank you, God, in your precious name. Amen. When I was uh, living for a while in Fort Worth, Texas, I was working for the Tandy Company. I was an assistant production manager. My job was to oversee the production line as they were making speakers, car speakers, that were going to be sold to Radio Shack stores. There were many, many people who worked there at different stations. And uh, there was one man in particular, one young man, whom God used to profoundly impact my life. I wasn't a Christian at the time, far from it. But there was a young man, a college kid, who came to work there that I've told you about in the past. His name was Ted. Ted came to work after school. He was going to university there, and uh, he came to earn money and to do work. Odd jobs, mostly. Sweeping up stuff, picking up extra parts, um, cleaning things that need to be cleaned. Ted was a Christian, a vibrant Christian. In fact, he used to drive me nuts. He'd go around saying all the time how much he loved Jesus and praised the Lord. And he always had a smile on his face. It was disgusting. I couldn't stand it. <laughs> and uh, no matter it seemed what he was facing at work or no matter what he faced at home or what he was facing at school, it never wavered with this kid. It was consistently positive. And he was always praising God. And I thought, this cannot be real. This cannot be real. I'm going to give this kid some of the nastiest jobs in the plant, and then we'll see how he does with that smile. Now, one of the worst jobs was cleaning speaker parts. They went through the line, but the speaker didn't connect right. So the parts were gathered up, taken into a special room. We had to clean it in this chemical to get this adhesive off. It was a stinky, smelly, dirty job. Nobody wanted it. And so I remember saying to him one day, Ted, you go in the cleaning room, man. You got to go in there and clean all those speaker parts. Praise the Lord! I love that job. You serious? He's in there, puts on the mask, puts on the glove. He's in there cleaning in the chemicals, singing praise to God. And I'm thinking, what is with this kid? He never changed. In fact, I still remember thinking, I don't know who this Jesus is, but whoever it is, he's making a difference in that kid. He was faithful in every situation I saw. 
which is one of the reasons why when I was leaving the company to go back to New England, I was willing to take what Ted came out to give me. Ted was the one who came out to the car. And he said, Larry, I've enjoyed working for you. And he said, I want you to have this. And he handed me a Bible, first one I ever got. And he said, this Bible will tell you about my Jesus. And I'm praying for you that you may come to know him too. That kind of faithfulness to God made a deep impression on me. Ted was faithful in every situation. He shined like a light. You know, I was thinking about Ted this week when I was reading in Acts 27 and 28 because I think in many ways Paul was a lot like that kid. Luke records the details in these chapters of Paul the prisoner on his way to Rome. Jesus had told him on his, Paul's last visit to Jerusalem, you remember in Acts 23, verse 11, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So Luke, along with their friend Aristarchus, are about to begin their journey. And Luke records it. An eyewitness, as only an eyewitness could write, he was on the ship with Paul, which is why he writes in the we. We did, we did, we did. When it was decided, Acts 27, verse 1, that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Paul was put on a ship with Julius the commander a member of the Imperial Regiment. The Imperial Regiment was kind of like the stormtroopers of the Star Wars classics. They were the ones who worked for the Empire. Their job was to transport prisoners and to accompany vehicles that were going in various places on Empire business. And so here is Julius and his Imperial Regiment transporting Paul to Rome, along with all the other prisoners. And Luke describes how they stopped at various ports along the way. And at Myra, they switched ships because they needed a bigger one. And so there was an Alexandrian ship from Egypt, a huge grain ship that was carrying a shipment from Alexandria to Rome. And when they heard about it there at Myra, they put them on the ship and they sailed off together on the Egyptian grain ship. It was early October or late September. It was after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, a very dangerous time to be traveling in the Mediterranean. Because seasoned sailors knew, and the reason they were looking for a good port was they knew that at any moment, strong winds would begin to develop. And all the way through November, it would be very difficult to travel and very dangerous. And sure enough, a storm struck. Paul had warned them, God's showing me you don't want to leave here from the island of Crete. We ought to stay. But they didn't listen to Paul. They listened to the pilot and the owner of the ship. A northeaster, a storm of hurricane force bore down off that island on the ship and took total control of it. They had no control of the ship whatsoever. It was driven along by these strong winds for more than a couple of weeks. And when all had been given up, all had been seemingly lost, 
Paul faithfully stands on the deck and brings a message of hope. The ship will be wrecked, but none of you will be lost. He bid them to trust God the way he was trusting God. And everything would be all right and God would see them through. And Paul remained faithful to God in every situation he faced. You and I are sent by God to do the very same thing. As Luke reminds us, we are sent by God to be faithful in every situation. But how do we do it? You do it the same way Paul did, the same way Christians have always had to do it, by trusting the word of God and by trusting the person of God. We are sent to be faithful in every situation by trusting the word of God. Look how Luke put it in chapter 27, verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. I was reading a piece by Ken Sandy in a book he wrote called Resolving Everyday Conflict when he was talking about being out for a jog one morning when he saw across the street a blind lady being led along by her guide dog. He said, as I stood about, as I was about to pass them, I noticed a car blocking a driveway a few paces ahead of them. At that moment, the dog paused and gently pressed his shoulder against the woman's leg, signaling her to turn aside so that they could get around the car. I'm sure she normally followed his lead, but that day she didn't seem to trust him. She had probably walked this route many times before and knew this was not the normal place to make a turn. Whatever the cause, she wouldn't move to the side and instead gave him the signal to move ahead. He again pressed his shoulder against her leg, trying to guide her on a safe path. She angrily ordered the dog to go forward, and when he again declined, her temper flared. I was about to speak up when the dog once more put his shoulder gently against her leg, and sure enough, she kicked him, and then she impulsively stepped forward and ran square into the car. Reaching out to feel the shape in front of her, she immediately realized what had happened. She had failed to trust the one who was trying to help. You know, like that woman, you and I are blind to what's in front of us. We don't know what the next few moments hold, much less tomorrow or the days beyond. We don't know all the things that God has scheduled for us. We don't know what paths he's going to ask us to take. We don't know what those roads may hold, and we don't know what hazards are out in front of us. But God does. And just as that guide dog was gently trying to nudge that woman in the right direction for her good, so God does the same with us. That woman needed the guide dog that she could trust. You and I need a word that we can trust. And God's word is the word.
that he has given to guide us through all the days ahead. The Apostle Peter once wrote in 1 Peter 1 verse 19, we have the prophetic message, the prophetic word, as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119 verse 105 that your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. You see, Paul and the others were in the midst of a violent storm. The sun was not shining, the moon did not light, the stars were not out. They were in total darkness. Lamps were not burning in the wind on the ship. Total darkness in a black sea, which is why they were crying out and praying for dawn to come. They couldn't see anything. They were completely blind. They had no idea what was going to happen or where they were going. But Paul remained faithful. And he trusted. He trusted God and he trusted his word. You see, Paul put his faith not on what his circumstances were saying, but on what God had said. Do you remember that passage we read about what Jesus told him when he was in Jerusalem, right before he left on this trip? Acts 23, 11. The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul knew he was going to Rome to testify. He had no idea how he was going to get there. He had no idea of all that was going to stand in the way between him and getting to Rome. All he knew was, Jesus said, we're going to Rome. And he believed him. So when the angel of God appeared on the ship, he was only reinforcing what Paul already believed. God's word can be trusted. Because it is not the word of men, it is the word of God. People, you and I are living in a world that creates cynicism. You and I right now are living at a time where it's hard to believe what anybody is saying to us. Is anyone telling us the truth? Is anyone giving us the whole story? God's word never changes. God's word is reliable. And you can always believe it. What God says, he will do. You remember when Paul wrote to the suffering faithful believers at Thessalonica? Aristarchus, his friend, on this journey with him, was from that church. And Paul told them in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. The word of God was at work in the Thessalonian church. That's why they could stay strong. The word of God was at work in Paul, which is why he could remain faithful. It's the word of God that gives us faith in God and the ability to trust him no matter what. Paul had written earlier to the Romans in Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. Which is exactly why Satan is always trying to keep you out of this book. People tell me all the time, I have such a hard time making time to read the Bible. I say to them, you think that's an accident? You can find time 
to read a magazine or read the newspaper or read the stuff that's on your phone. You can find time to watch a movie or a TV show or do the things you want to do. Do you think it's an accident that it's hard for you to find time to read the Word in a meaningful way that's going to sow God's Word in your heart? That's not, a, that's not an accident. The evil one himself is trying to keep you out of here because if you are not listening to the voice of God, you'll be listening to his voice or the voice of the culture or the voice of your circumstance or the voice of your friends. And you'll be interpreting everything that's happening to you by those voices when God is trying to give you the truth. If Paul had believed his circumstances, he'd have been in the same panic everybody else was. But he wasn't because he listened to what God said. You're going to Rome. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher, once said, faith is a refusal to panic. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, this faith transforms the whirlwind of despair into a warm and reviving breeze of hope. There's a reason we're in this storm. Jesus will sometimes lead us into the storms to teach us to listen and to trust God's word. Faith in his word is perfected in the storm. Do you remember in Mark chapter 4, after teaching all day the parables of the kingdom, Jesus, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, tells his disciples, get in the boat, we're, we're going for a ride. You remember what he told them? I love this, Mark 4, verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with them. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Sound familiar? You ever been in a storm, a crisis, things are falling apart, and you're crying out to God saying, Don't you care? Where are you? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down. It was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Look at this. Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Who told the disciples to get in the boat? Jesus did. Who told them to go out across the lake? Jesus did. Who knew the storm was coming? Jesus did. He sent them in there. So here they are in the midst of a furious squall so that seasoned fishermen are terrified. And they think they're drowning. They wake Jesus up. He stills the storm. And what does he say to them? You got a faith problem. Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? Why in the world would Jesus say, that men who are terrified by an obvious storm have a faith problem because they didn't listen or believe what he said. You remember in verse 35? Let's go over 
to the other side. He didn't say, let's get in the boat, go out in the middle of the storm and drown. He said, we're going to the other side. Now, if they had heard that and believed what he said, one of them could have said, hey, guys, don't be afraid. Sit down, hang on, white knuckle this thing. It's going to be a rough ride, but I'm telling you, you don't have to be afraid. I don't know how he's going to do it, but we're going to the other side. Where's your faith, he said. They didn't believe his word. People, what storm are you in right now? Maybe you're in a season of quiet water, but I can assure you storms are coming, and you know they are. Because the storms are necessary. So many people panic in the storms because they're not listening to what God has really said or they don't believe him. Many times we're afraid in these storms because we don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't know where it's going to end up. Jesus told some grieving sisters next to the graveside of their brother in John chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Meaning if your body dies, you're really going to be alive. And if you're alive right now, you're never really going to die. Your body will, but you never will. So don't tell me you don't know how the thing ends up. If you're a Christian, the biggest thing's already been solved. You're going with Jesus to the other side. There are going to be a lot of storms in between, and you don't know where he's going to take you. But be assured of this. Hang on. White knuckle this thing. The road's going to be rough. But guess what? We're going to the other side. That's a promise from Jesus. And that's the root of our faith. That's why we live the way we do. We're not always afraid as everybody else is. Because we have a promise. We believe God's word. Paul reminded Timothy near the end of Paul's life that storms are inevitable and even necessary. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But you've got to hold on to God's word. Do you remember? 2 Timothy 3, the last letter we believe he wrote. To Timothy, who was leading a church at Ephesus. Verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. And what? Persecutions and suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. People, the world is a mess. We shouldn't be surprised. It's going to get worse before it gets better. How do we know that? Because Jesus said so. So we shouldn't be in dismay when we see things coming unraveled. We ought to say, the best is yet to come. God's doing his work. So what do we do in the meantime? But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, 
rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, for every situation. Paul would face many more trials before God would finally call him home. But he learned in the storm on the way to Rome what he was going to need to remember when he got to Rome. To stay faithful to God no matter what. Believe what God says. As Luke reminded us in verse 25, Paul said, So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Not only by trusting the word of God, but we are sent to be faithful in every situation by trusting the person of God. Luke wrote in verse 22, But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God. Leslie Scanlon wrote an article called Columbia President Affirms Faith Despite Spreading Cancer. It's the story of their beloved 66-year-old president of Columbia Theological Seminary, Steve Hayner, who a couple of years ago was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. After tests had revealed that the chemotherapy wasn't working, uh, President Hayner wrote, the cancer continues to have the upper hand What now seems clear from a purely physical perspective is that in all probability, the remainder of my life on this earth is now to be counted in weeks and months. In a blog post, Hainer addressed the many people who had been praying for a miraculous healing. This is what he wrote. Many are praying for one of God's big miracles, and we are as well. But it's not how God answers prayer that determines our response to God. God is committed to my ultimate healing, but being cured of my cancer may or may not be a part of that healing work. One person told me how disturbed it is to her to watch so many thousands of prayers on my behalf and yet to see a minimal of physical evidence of healing. Does God really heal? Does the amount of prayer have any special impact? Honestly, he wrote, while I understand the importance and logic of questions like this, Most of these questions are not ones that are important to me. I truly don't know what God has planned. I could receive healing through whatever means, or I could continue to deteriorate. But life is about a lot more than physical health. It's measured by a lot more than medical tests and vital signs. More important than the more particular aspects of God's work with with us is God's overall presence with us, nourishing, equipping, transforming, empowering, and sustaining us for whatever might be God's call in my life today. Today, my call might be to learn something new about rest. Today, my call might be to encourage another person in some very tangible way. Today, my call might be to learn something more about patience, endurance, and identifying with those who suffer. 
Today, my call might be simply to mull through a new insight about God's truth or character. To know him better. You see, President Hayner remained faithful to God and testified to his goodness because he knew and trusted the person of God. In fact, he said, the cancer process was only teaching him to trust God more. Our faith is not rooted in health or wealth or answered prayer. Our faith is rooted in the person and character of God. And that's why Paul remained faithful to God because he trusted God. Look what Paul told the 275 other people on board who had lost all hope. Verse 22, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, man, for I have faith in God. It's going to happen just like that. Notice how Paul describes God. The God to whom I belong. God is mine and I am his. This is the God whom I serve. I'm not in charge, he is. I'm serving him. This is the God who sent his angel last night to stand beside me and to give me encouragement. This, this is the God in whom I've placed my faith. You see, Paul trusted God's person because he knew God is good and everything God does is for good, no matter how it seems. Do you remember what God told Moses when Moses said, God, I want to know who you are. I want to see all your glory. If you're going to ask me to lead these people to the wilderness, to the promised land, I want to know you. I want to see your glory. Exodus 33 and 19, remember what God told him? Moses, I'm going to cause my goodness, all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. You want to see who I am, Moses? I'm going to show you. I'm the God who's all goodness. You're going to need to remember that in the storms we're going to face in the desert. Remember Jesus' response to the ruler who came and asked how to have salvation? Luke 18, verse 18. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why are you calling me good? You know God is good. Have you seen something in me that others have missed? You're calling me good and you know only God is good. Have you seen that I am God and the goodness you see in me is the goodness of God? Is that why you're calling me good? God is good. And because of that, you can trust that everything that happens, God is going to use for good. Remember what Paul had written to the Romans? Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works 
for the good of those who love him in all things who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. People, it's a done deal. You and I are going to be like Jesus. But we don't know all the things God has got yet to do to make us like Jesus. But in the midst of those trials, when he's chipping off all of those things that have to be carved away to make us look like Christ, to make us be like him, you can be sure God is working in all those things for good and for his purpose. You remember what Paul would write to the Philippian church, another suffering church who was faithful to God and to the mission? Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So, he goes on to say, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll shine among them like stars in the skies. You'll hold firmly to the word of life, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, why did Paul say that? Because when we grumble and argue, when we complain, we're telling God we don't believe that He's using the things we're in for His good. He just said, It's God who works in you to will and to act for His good purpose. So when I find myself complaining now, and I do it, Lord, this is hard, I don't like it, blah, 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 blah. God can come along and say to me, Larry, wait a sec. Wait a sec. Do you believe I'm in this? Do you believe that I'm in charge of this? Do you believe that I'm using this for good to make you more like my son? Yes, Lord, I believe it. Then quit complaining. I'm doing what I'm doing that nobody else will do because I'm achieving something that no one else can achieve. I'm transforming you into the image of my son. Wow, God. Help me to remember that. See, Paul trusted God because he knew God was good and everything God works is for good, even the hard things. But he also trusted God because he knew God was sovereign. It will happen, just as he told me. God's in control of this. He's the one who's the absolute. Paul knew that it was God who was controlling the storm. Paul believed what God said in Psalm 135, verse 5. I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth and the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain. He brings out wind from his storehouses. People, I don't mean this statement to be political or anti-scientific or anything else, but I got to tell you, I get tired of hearing that the deodorant I'm using in the car I'm driving is causing hurricanes and floods and fires. I get tired of hearing that stuff. 
We need to be good stewards of the earth that God has let us live on. No question. But people, you need to understand something. The Bible is clear. Man does not control the weather. God controls the weather to achieve his purposes. If God melts the polar ice cap and floods the, floods the earth, so be it. He said, I'm not going to cover the whole earth again with a flood, so I ain't worried about it. If God wants a hurricane to achieve his purpose, he's going to bring it. If he wants a, a fire to achieve his purpose, he's going to bring it. Humans may think they have had some cause in this, but it's God who works in these things. Paul understood I'm in this storm because God scheduled this for me and he's sovereign over it. We're in the dark. We have no rudder. We have no direction. We don't know where we are. God is completely in control. We're not. And he trusted God in that. In fact, God's sovereignty is all over this thing. God's sovereignty is all over it. It was God who sovereignly prevented the soldiers from killing Paul and the prisoners when they were trying to escape or thought they were going to escape. That was protocol. They intervened. Didn't happen. Everybody, even those who couldn't swim, got safely to the shore, floating on pieces of a broken up ship. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made it. The unique kindness, unusual kindness, shown them by the islanders, all the sovereignty of God. Paul, having no ill effects, being bitten by a poisonous viper that the islanders all knew should kill him. Right down to this. So many details, but how about this? The Roman governor of the island, Publius, the Roman governor of the island, invites a ship full of prisoners to come to his house for three days like a resort, and he generously takes care of them. They have a blast together. His dad is sick, and Paul heals him. The island comes, and they get cured, and when they're ready to leave, Publius goes, wow, we'll give you another boat, and we're going to load it up for everything you need on your trip to Rome. The sovereignty of God in all of that. That stuff doesn't happen normally. Paul said, God's doing this. Which is why, which is why Paul remained faithful to God even in Rome. Even facing his own execution. He was still trusting God and was faithful to the end. You remember what he wrote to Timothy? Some of the last words we think he ever wrote. 2 Timothy 4, verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. For what? So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed. And all the Gentiles, all the nations might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, many people today panic in the midst of their crises. They panic in what they see going on in the world today. Sometimes they even blame God for what they're going through. But Paul didn't because he believed in God's goodness and he believed in his sovereignty and he put his faith in God. He said, I have faith in God. So can you. 
And people, you and I have been given the same message and the same mission. We are to share God's good news with all who will listen. And God is going to be with us through it all. Ian Lanch is an international evangelist. He speaks to corporate heads and government heads. And he wrote a book a few years ago called Life Before Death, A Restored, Regenerated, Renewed Life. And in it, he was sharing how a businessman had asked him if he would speak to his staff. And he said, I readily accepted. One of his staff asked me if we could talk privately. She said, Ian, when I was 22, I was in a serious car accident and my boyfriend was killed. I've gone through a lot of surgery and I'm now doing well. But when that happened, I lost my faith. Ian Leitch said, what do you say to someone like that? Who's obviously been through a lot of travail. He said, well, I prayed, and this is what I said as kindly as I could. You know, when they built the Queen Mary, the Queen Elizabeth, and the QE2, they didn't test them in dry dock. They didn't leave them in dry dock and get out big hoses to spray on them to see if they would leak. They got the ships out into the open ocean to put them through sea trials. Trials. These trials were not intended to sink the ship. The trials were to prove that the ship was seaworthy. The only way you can know whether your faith is real or not is when the pressure of life comes. When you go through trials. Then you know if you're seaworthy or not. And so he said to her, can I ask you honestly, did you lose your faith? Or did that trial only prove that you never really had any? She said, Ian, I guess you're right. I had none. To be faithful means to live a life full of faith. Faith and trust in God's word. Faith and trust in God's person his goodness and his sovereignty. You and I, like Paul, are sent by God on a mission, and we've been given a message to share the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus with all who will listen everywhere we go. There are going to be storms along the way, storms of many kinds. There's going to be illnesses. There's going to be job loss. There's going to be financial setbacks. There's going to be relational strife. It's a part of life. In the world, you will have trouble. What helps us to stay faithful to God in those times is when we really believe what he said and we believe who he is. Paul knew God had a job for him in Rome. And so he believed that God would bring him safely to the other side. They'd get through the storm with God. Next week, Lord willing, Pastor Phil's going to come and show us how Paul, this man, just like you and me, was not only faithful going to Rome, he was faithful in Rome. And we're going to see together how Paul was faithful even to the very end.